Welcome to Surviving Saturday, a podcast about holding on to hope in the midst of life's difficulties, disappointments, and dark seasons. Times like that remind us of the agony and despair the followers of Jesus felt on the Saturday of Easter weekend, in between the Friday on which he was crucified and the Sunday on which he rose from the dead. That Sunday forever changed the way that humans can relate to God. But what does it look like to be honest about the very real pain we experience in the in-between? To fervently cling to hope in the God who promised us His peace and His presence, at times when He feels distant or even cruel. I'm Wendy Osborne, a licensed counselor in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm her husband, Chris, a marriage mediator, conflict resolution coach, and trauma-informed story work coach. Join us each episode for authentic conversations about how life not turning out as we'd expected has created the contextual soil for the growth of a tenacious hope in the resurrection and in a God who is still making all things new. Hey there, and we're so glad to be with you for another episode of the Surviving Saturday podcast. Um, We are still coming to you from Bar Harbor, Maine. And we are on our 30th anniversary trip and having fun doing kind of a retrospective, uh, remembering things that have gone on over the years and ways that God showed up, things we've learned. Uh, But we've been revisiting some of the Saturday moments that we faced, really, that we encountered in our marriage. And Wendy, why don't you tell folks kind of why are we doing that? What's our hope as we go through some of these Saturday stories and talk about how we survived them? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, the reason we're going to go back through some of these painful desert time stories is because it helps us and hopefully it will help you to see the things we were turning to to make life work instead of Jesus. And so we're going to take two episodes here where we each share our perspective of a hard event And we're going to unpack the ways that we each responded and what led to that response. And now looking back years later, we can see ways that um, Jesus was inviting us to break some strongholds we had, meaning um, get rid of some coping strategies for how to make life work on our own. Yeah, we should mention that... um we're able to dive back in and sort of connect some of these dots. I mean, really, you have to have the perspective of being past it, of, of time having passed, of having learned different lessons or been through different things. Um, at the time, everything we're going to tell you about <clears throat> what happened in this particular Saturday situation, none of it was really apparent to us at the time. We could no. not have the meta-level analysis. No, of, that's taken a lot of work to get there. Yeah, and the hope is by illustrating that it can it can be something that hopefully gives people hope and a way of saying, you know, there's clearly more going on than we can see in any particular circumstance. God's always working something, but in the middle of it, it just feels like my legs are on fire or this is burning up, I've lost a limb, whatever. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to survive. feels really hopeless. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think you were going to, for a particular Saturday season, uh, it was quite a Saturday season for us, I think. And you were going to maybe start off talking about a, a time when I had a, a very unexpected job loss as we were brand new parents and, and yep. a lot of things going on. So why don't you start with that, I guess? Yeah. So here's the story from my own perspective. Um, 
this was six or seven years into our marriage and our second child was a newborn. I'm guessing a month-ish old. And so I remember you coming home from work, Chris, we had relatives visiting because we had this new baby and you pulled me aside and said, can I talk to you in private? It's really important. And I could tell there was this sense of urgency in your voice. So we stepped into our laundry room um, and I could already read the level of stress in your body. And we both knew that it would be too much to ask these relatives to bear, um, that it would be unfair to their own um, tendencies and proclivities toward anxiety to um, share this with them yet. So um, you let me know that you had lost your job that day. And my heart kind of stopped, but I didn't pay any attention to that. Um, my mind just started racing and I was highly aware that I had stopped officially working just a few weeks prior. Like and we had so, just had Sir Kate, our second child. Yes. And so um, all sources of income that I had had um, were done. And so we were thoroughly dependent on you. Um, and I, it was pretty scary. So um, I remember you saying, hey, it's going to be okay. I've already stopped by the seminary um, <laughs> and I've gotten an application and I think this might be God's door to um, inviting me into full-time vocational ministry. So my stomach dropped as I heard you talk, um, but my um, sense of caretaking and compliance took over. And I remember I just smiled at you there in the laundry room and I was, I said, yeah, okay, yeah, great, um, sure. Um, at the time, I was living not very embodied, but I was living very much out of my head, out of my cognitive resources. Um, I didn't have any authentic sense of hope. I didn't even really reckon with whether I felt hopeless. Um, I was just willing to be naively enthusiastic because this had been my instinct for a long time in life. Um, I didn't take time to process what you were telling me. I just went straight into my natural mode of not paying enough attention to my feelings or needs, but making sure that you were okay, that you weren't afraid of the job loss, that you weren't in pain, that I hold everything and let you know, oh, great, this is great. Um, now, that's one thread of the story. Um, the other important part is that you had been fired by an old friend. Um, and that in itself led not just to shock that you hadn't seen it coming, but an incredible awkwardness in figuring out how to pick up the pieces after the fact and knowing how to move forward. Um, so at the time we were in church with this friend, you were an officer, I think, in the church already. Um, and we were both deeply active in the church in any case. And so we had to see this person every weekend 
Now, the time of year, it's important to mention, was right around the holidays. I think this was early to mid-December. And we had no known source of income. Um, we had a new baby and a three-year-old. And we had to engage this person essentially in a meet and greet every weekend. How are you? Um, and I wanted to scream terrified. <laughs> But I would say, we're good, we're good, look at our new baby. Mm. And again, just living very detached. Yeah. Um, so moving on from there, I remember that you verbalized forgiveness to this person pretty quickly. And yeah. you told him you wanted to stay friends. I was still jolted and super confused by what had happened. Um, and I was over here as a stay-at-home mom really scared for our future. Um, as our relatives found out what was happening, their fear revved my fear up even more. Um, and so to survive, I covered all those vulnerable emotions with an impenetrable anger. And I was mad as heck. Um, now, some level of anger is an appropriate response to events that feel just. Well, yeah. So I want to be clear there. But my anger went into super protection mode. I wanted to fight to keep you, me, our family safe and provided for. So in this situation, I read you as being passive. And so I took things in my own hands and used anger as my fuel. Um, and I picked up the phone and I called your friend to ask what had happened. I forgot he did that. Oh, you yeah. about this. It was not one of my finer moments. Um, not because I called, but because I called with anger and demandingness. Now, he was not very reassuring or apologetic. Um, part of that could have been the way I was asking the questions. I see that. Um, part of that could have been that he didn't quite know what to do with my questions. Um, but I hung up the phone, a mixture of deeply sad and still very angry. Um, the confusion hasn't, hadn't dissipated at all. So I told you what happened, and I remember you being confused and surprised and also a little bit embarrassed. So that, in my experience, motivated you to find a way to fix the friendship even more. Um, so I'll pause right there um, before I give any more of my own thoughts about what exactly led me to handle the situation this way. Um, but I'm wondering what you're thinking as I talk. Gosh, yeah, I'm remembering aspects of that story. And, and uh, of course, when, when I tell it from my perspective, I'll, I'll kind of walk through it. Uh, but I'm struck by um, just as we look back, I mean, just looking at you at basically you're your 30 years old at this point um a mom of two now and you have just stepped away from your career can you step back into sort of uh get in touch with what what did that feel like of 
Um, you know, you were fully dependent on what I could do. And here I come very unexpectedly saying, um, I've got to find a new place to work. They were, they were, they didn't say get out right away. I didn't have only two right. weeks, but it was holidays. So it was a tough yeah. time to find a new job. Um, but can you get back in touch with what your body feeling and, and what it felt like at that point? Oh, I was petrified. And, you know, we have to remember that what we shared in the last episode was only a couple of years old at this point, where um, we had conceived our first child, your mother was diagnosed with cancer, a struggle with pornography came out, then you had major surgery followed by radiation. And so there were so many things swirling that already led me to think the people in my life would prove unreliable. And so this landed there. And I was scared to death. I felt betrayed from so many angles. And that included from God. And I remember sitting on our bed, I think I was reading a Christianity Today article. And it was giving a survey of the lives of many of the men we look to in scripture as our heroes. And it talked about Jonah and Moses and Elijah and others who had reached a point of desperation such that they said to God, if this is all there is, kill me now. Oh, wow. Um, and I just remember getting in touch with a darkness of is life ever going to feel safe to me? I can feel tears coming really close um, right now as I think back. Um, and I also realized I was not alone with those feelings. That that biblical characters that I had looked up to and drawn strength from had been in that very place. And was that like a new sort of revelation, a new... It was brand new because I mentioned before that part of my story is that if I suffer, it's somehow my fault. That the Christian life should show Jesus off very well, sort of this victorious oh. Christianity. And I can't say that a singular person ever said that to me, but my body believed that if Jesus was my rescuer, that he would be very protective. Okay. Okay. Um, and so what did, what were you thinking then? Um, cause I, you were right. I did come in and say, um, uh, Hey, one of the things I did was on the way home, literally from getting this news, I stopped off at, we have a seminary, uh, near where we live here in Charlotte. And, um, I'll give more context on why I did that later, but how did that strike you when I said, hey, here's what might be happening. I might be being called out of law into the ministry anyway. How did that land? Yeah, I don't think in the moment I gave myself time to notice what happened in me. I went straight into this instinct of I'll make it okay. Okay. And so I said, oh, sure, sure. And I wanted to believe that um, that was maybe the source of provision. And I didn't stop to contend with just how scary the whole thing felt. And as you are, as you've kind of processed back through thinking back on that story, um, 
can you say, because I, I know you couldn't have made this connection then, but are are there times in your past before that where you had felt that a similar sense of that sort of overwhelm, powerlessness, oh. and you just, and your job is to just deal with it, get yeah. through it, push through. Yeah. So the first um, story of that sort that comes to mind would have been when I was eight or nine years old. And um, I was lucky enough to have um, a dad who built two of the houses that I grew up in. Um, building and construction were not his career, but he was very gifted in that. And so at this point, we were building our second home and the one that my parents would stay in until you and I were married. Okay. Um, and so we rented a house in a completely different part of town that at the time was not considered very posh. It was a little um, edgy, but it was what we could afford to rent while my dad was building our house. And so um, I was already a little bit scared of what this new neighborhood might bring. But we went in to um, look at the house right before we moved in. And, you know, in my memory, looking back, the house, it was definitely very sparse. Like we just needed a place to live as a family of five. And the floors were concrete. The walls were white, sort of that stucco look. And um, it was just bare bones. And so my parent showed me the room that would be my bedroom. And it was right inside the front door. You took an immediate left and it bordered the front porch. And we got in the room and we were looking. And I remember it had like this musty smell. The whole house did. It was just an old house. And so one of my parents said, one thing to know about this room, Wendy, is that the last owner died in here. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like I've heard of that, like, diedinhouse.com that now you can see, you know, if anybody's died in your house. Oh, my you gosh. But this was our version of that. And so um, they said, you know, the last owner died in this room. We hope it's not haunted. Now, I'm sure that, they were just intending to have fun. But I was a little girl, eight or nine, with a highly sensitive spirit. Yeah. And I remember being so scared. And I also knew I couldn't say that I was scared because nobody quite knew what to do with my emotions. Um, I felt things deeply. And... Um, their, the way that they handle it was to diffuse it with humor. Okay. And so um, what happened is I was petrified to be in that room when it got dark. And I don't think I ever spent a night in the room um, because I couldn't stop thinking about ghosts being in the room with me, like yeah. being haunted. And so my parents said, well, just go um, sleep in your brother's room. And so that's what I did for the next year and a half, two years while we were there. You know, my dad had his own job, so the building of the house was not fast. So I think we were in that house, the rental, a year and a half or two. And so um, I just slept elsewhere. 
Is that the one we went and found when we were home in Albany? We probably did. A few yes. years back for a reunion or something. Yes. And, and we went and found kind of and where it was. And I think the house is gone, but the fence that bordered my best friend's house, because I made friends with the girl next door, the, the stone fence is still there. And that was really fun to see. Yeah. But I'm struck by, as you tell that story, you're at a, a really vulnerable age. You're eight, you're nine. What's a kid's conception of themselves and the world around them? Like developmentally, what's going on for an eight or nine-year-old at that point? Well, I mean, I really wanted to please the adults in my life. Like I had learned um, that being a good kid and being compliant made the adults in my life pleased with me. Okay. And that made life go much smoother. And that's pretty typical um, for eight and 10 year olds, um, just to be very compliant. Okay. It's at about 11, they start individuating and being able to think of themselves apart from the family. But at this point, I really need my family to be pleased with me. Sure. And so instead, what they're giving you instead of welcome into this new phase of life, new phase of being a kid, they're saying kind of almost having fun, like, oh, this is scary, ha ha ha, somebody yeah. died there. But that's kind of got an impact on your on your little body, your system there. Oh, my little body, like I can still feel the knots in my stomach and like the holding of my breath. And those are two things that happen now when I get in stressful situations, mm. if I'll tune into my body, I feel those. Two. Um, now, you know, knowing more now, my parents both had dealt with very scary family situations when they were young. And I think they didn't know what to do with fear. Right. So they also had found ways to cope. And a lot of it was through minimization and humor. Um, but I didn't have the cognitive capabilities to minimize that. Um, this was a story that they told me that felt very real. Like perhaps it is haunted mm -hmm. and my brother didn't want me in his room. No. I mean, it was on a little sister in there. Um, but I was so scared that that's what I did. Now I didn't think about it for years and years later, but no one suggested we switch rooms. Because oh. a boy could have thought that was fun. Well, he's four years, older, yeah. four years older. Four years older, about thirteen, he might have been like, "Hey, the age of Ghostbusters." Right, that, that exactly, exactly. Um, and so yeah, I just learned to acquiesce, conform, and to be okay. So I didn't continue to tell anyone I was scared. I just made, and I just went and slept in the other room, um, and just figured out how to be okay and I my body just just stayed I think a lot of times in knots so when this job loss things happen you're a young mom of your own kids um it sounds like you're saying that was it was natural for you to yeah. be knotted up to be sort of tied up uh -huh. and to you know, you just, this is just another challenge. You have to just suck it up and face. Yes. And so there, there's something kind of redemptive in a way that as I look at it now, I don't think I thought it at the time, but the fact that you pick up the phone yes. and call the friend of mine who is the partner in the firm 
and and spoke to it. There's something kind of bold and defiant in that in a, in a kind of good way. Yes. And so I will say I've come to see God planted a tenacity in me um, at birth. And so I've sort of lived both in the place of just make do to keep everyone happy and life is up to me. So I've kind of been in both of those places, but my tenacity in the story of the job loss looked like me being able to pick up the phone and speak to how the experience was for me. Now, I didn't do it well. I didn't do it with maturity. I was way too angry and contemptuous, but it was movement forward as compared to when I was young and felt and really didn't have a lot of choice. Yeah, it strikes me, and partly it's because I know some of your other stories that I'm sure we'll share at some point in time about times of fear where you were kind of rendered mute. Yes. You didn't speak and you were haunted sort of by this silence. Yeah. And so here where you actually vocalized, you know, disappointment, frustration, you, you asked questions and you asked, as we look back on it, you asked questions that I wasn't really asking and, right. and probably should have been. Um, you, you, I think part of my recollection, and we'll get to it in the next episode was I wasn't letting myself feel the weight of what was going on and, and the way it all played out. And I almost had to kind of learn from you, wait a minute, there's, there's a betrayal aspect to this. There's a, a sadness to this that, that I wanted to move and motor past yeah. and not give any time for it. And we'll talk about that in my yeah. story. But I love that you, you had integrity and you connected with it feeling you were, you were angry on my behalf. I was angry on your behalf. And there was a, there was a holiness in that. I yeah, think. I think there was. I Again, think there was. Not in how we played it out and not in no. how it's communicated, but the fierceness that that alarm in you, something is wrong. And at this point in my life, I'm actually going to say something about it. There's something kind of beautiful and redemptive in that. Yeah, I think it was desperate for people to join me in the reality of what was happening. And that's just a, a theme throughout my life of will other people see what's actually happening and do something? Um, because otherwise I'm left with life is up to me and I've got to make do to make it work. Well, it's intriguing to connect that to um, eventually your career path, becoming a counselor, because would you say a lot of what you do sometimes in counseling relationships is you are seeing dynamics uh-huh. and naming things that maybe people aren't naming because you're coming in from the outside because you have different perspective but you kind of have to have that courage to be somebody who names things in a but, way that enables people invites people to right, deal with their feelings we have so many barriers to naming reality one is as a christian should my life really be that bad Another is, if I'm a Christian and life really is that bad, how does that represent Jesus as if we're responsible for saving his reputation? Um, Sometimes we're ashamed of what's happening in life and we don't want to share. Sometimes we have stories where we haven't been able to feel or to speak 
like. And so we, we don't know how to do that now. So yeah, the, the role that I often play is very gently pulling back the veil and helping people see what's actually happening because Jesus works in reality in what's going on. He doesn't work in fiction. Right. And in pretend and denial. He he's on the scene live. And so to see him, we've got to actually see what's truly happening in life. Well you and that sounds like something you were saying when we were on a walk earlier today and we were talking about even just looking at present day challenges. If you get the sense that I'm not engaged with reality and I'm sort of either checked out or in denial that makes it harder for you to, to engage. A hundred and fifty percent. Because it, it, it sounds like it takes you back to that place of, dang it, I've got to be the strong one. Yeah. I've got to be the person. I've got to take over here. Um, and then it becomes very disrespectful of you and your dignity where there are places that you could live more of who you really are. Yeah. Um, but I collude with your denial by just taking over and saying, fine, I'll just, I'll get things done uh, rather than calling you out of that. Yeah. So kind of wrapping this episode, we're going to come back to it from my perspective in, in a little bit here, but uh, I love hearing that, that invitation to, you know, and, and, and Jesus was like this, he named reality. He named what was yes. true. Like when he countered the woman at the well, yes. he's like, well, no, that you can't go get your husband because the man you're with, you aren't married to, and you've had others. He's, he names reality, but yes. not in a shaming way right. and not in a way that crushes her, but he's like, well, let's, let's be in the realm of reality. Yes. Let's don't, you know, be happy, clappy in denial. Yeah. But then let's embrace that reality. Yes. And Paul talks about that. You know, we've known shipwrecks. We've known betrayal. Yes. We've known enemies coming after us. To the point that we wanted to die. Yeah. yeah. We despaired as unto death. Um, the Psalms yeah. uh, have so many elements of let's name what's not going well and how yes. we feel about it. I remember that being an invitation, yeah, for me to connect with my heart. Um, and, and part of the thing we underscore too is it's, it's hard for two people who have challenges in connecting to reality, naming what's going on without either having a huge big overreaction or being in denial. Yes. You know, that's where the journey of marriage is two people learning to understand that yes. and navigate that. Yes. Well that's a good place to, to pause on this story and we'll be back with the next episode. See you again. Bye. The Surviving Saturday Podcast is brought to you by Nurture Counseling PLLC, a counseling teaching and training center based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. We help families flourish one story at a time. Nurture Counseling provides counseling, counseling intensive for couples, conflict resolution coaching, story work groups, seminars, workshops, and retreats to provide a safe and welcoming context for exploring the agonizing experiences of pain, brokenness, and evil that disrupt our lives and that God often uses to nurture deeper trust and intimacy with Him and with each other. You can find us online at www.nurturecounseling.net.